A few weeks ago, while we were out in Los Angeles for our pop-up at the UTA Artist Space, we recorded the first two live episodes of Houdinki Radio. You've already heard our conversation with comedian and car guy Spike Ferriston, and if you haven't, it's episode 11 and you should totally go back and check it out. And today, we've got the second one ready for you. Matt Scannell is the lead singer and guitar player of Vertical Horizon, a band that you've definitely heard. All you had to do was turn on a radio for a few seconds between 1999 and 2001, and you'd be greeted by their number one hit, Everything You Want. But Matt's actually been a musician since he was a kid, and he's still making music with his band to this day. He sat down in front of a live audience with Kara, James, and me to have a fun conversation about selling CDs out of the back of his car, collecting everything from watches to rare guitars to Japanese denim, and his strict rules for watch collecting that he's constantly breaking anyway. He even sings for Kara a little bit. Like I said, this is a fun one, people. I'm your host, Stephen Pulverant, and this is Hodinkee Radio Live. This week's episode is brought to you by Hook and Albert. Stay tuned later in the show to learn more about this global travel brand and their range of travel accessories. You can also learn more at hookandalbert.com. Thanks, everybody, for coming out on a Sunday morning. Uh, this is Hodinky Radio Live. I'm your host, Stephen Pulverin. I'm Cara Barrett, editor at Hodinky. Thanks for coming today. <laughs> I'm Matt Scannell from the band Vertical Horizon. Uh, I'm James Stacy, senior writer with Hodinkee. <laughs> Matt is somebody who's been a part of the Hodinkee family now for, I guess, a couple of years. Um, yeah. We first kind of, I think, roped you in at an event out here, and you just kind of introduced yourself, and no, no turning back from there, right? No, yeah, I mean, for me, you guys have been a part of my life for a lot longer than than uh, we've known each other. I, um, you know, late night searching the internet about this crazy watch passion that I have and trying to find uh, information and insight from different places. And it seemed like a lot of places were kind of dodgy as far as maybe, uh, well, certainly it's what first attracted me, the the photographs on your page were always so beautiful and the writing was so great. And I felt like I I could trust at least if it wasn't something to my taste, I could trust that I'd be learning about something in a good way from your page. So um, I would always, I'd go check your site every day. So when I met you guys, I was you know, well and truly a fan of what you guys do. So um, I've known about you guys for a long time. Let's, let's kind of go back to the beginning. Um, you have a pretty great story that starts with some kind of very uh, kind of heroic, like early band sort of stories and then uh, up through where we are today. So do you want to like yeah. take us back to the beginning and, and kind of tell us how your career in music started? Sure. I mean, I, I started playing guitar when I was seven years old and I had a, my father had a guitar in the house and, and I didn't know, he didn't play it very much, so I didn't know how to play it. So I put it across my lap and I just plucked the open strings like a harp. Um, and I actually learned how to play My Best Friend's Girl by the Cars by just playing the open strings like a harp. It's my main claim to fame, actually. But um, I uh, uh, was incredibly passionate about guitar. I wasn't a very, um, uh, it wasn't easy for me as a kid, as I'm sure is not very uncommon, to discuss my feelings, talk about why I felt the way I felt. So I turned to guitar as a, as a means to uh, sort of heal some of the stuff that was kind of broken inside of me. And um, 
or at least attempt to do that. And music then, and guitar specifically over the years, has really come to mean just that. It's a, it's a way for me to express myself and it's a way for me to keep myself feeling whole or at least more whole. Um, I started uh, with my uh, dear friend Keith Kane, a band, uh, my band Vertical Horizon back in 91. Uh, we went to Georgetown University together there and uh, um, would play gigs on the weekends as an acoustic duo, um, which was so much easier than the band now because you just have one case and that's it. You know, now there are laser beams and drum sets and Marshall stacks and stuff, but um, uh, yeah, and then we toured the country incessantly. We printed up a thousand copies of a CD called There and Back Again. Uh, we thought for sure that we'd be giving them away, you know, from that original printing to our great grandkids, you know, but actually they sold. People purchased these records and supported us. Uh, and so we made records to follow and uh, eventually um, signed with RCA Records, um, had a record that come out in 99, I believe, called Everything You Want, uh, which was a, the title track was the song that you guys were playing as we started this. And um, yeah, the, the music has sort of gone all the way around the world um, and we travel the world and hear people sing my songs. And it's, uh, it's incredibly humbling, it's also incredibly exciting. And when I was a kid, I went to see Billy Joel play at Madison Square Garden, and I had, you know, the, the last seats in the last row. And when he played Piano Man, he had to stop singing because we were all singing so loudly. And I thought even back then, I think this was on the Stormfront tour, um, I thought even back then that that would be the highest honor for a songwriter to feel like the people had, his, the audience had taken the, the, you know, his, or, you know, his or her songs so deeply into the hearts that they sang louder than the performer could with a million watts of PA system uh, supporting him. So I've, I've had those experiences now, um, and it's unbelievable. What is it like in those early days when, you, when you're hustling, right? Like yeah. you're, you're selling CDs out of the back of a car, you're thinking that that one pressing is going to go forever, yeah. and you're just trying to get people to hear what you're doing. How, how do you do that? How do you get that out to people? Well, I think the main thing back then, and even uh, it's it sort of it, the record business has changed so much over the years that, that I've been doing it. Um, the main thing back then was going to different places, Give, you know, getting as close to your fans as possible, meaning play every single town in this, in this country, and, and we certainly did that, um, and continue to do that. Uh, that. That's been the most important thing. Um, for, the, for the years when we were on a major label, things kind of changed a little bit, where it, we were almost, uh, the, the concept was, hey, let's pull you back a little bit, make you a little bit less available. Um, but that was never our, um, sort of ethos from the beginning. We were a grassroots band. We wanted to say, you know, reach out and shake hands and say thank you for supporting us because truly it does, you know, you guys know what this, you know, you guys know all about this. A passionate fan base supports you and lifts you up and enables you to do this thing that, that you love. Um, and I think sometimes maybe artists of all kinds and maybe people of all kinds can kind of lose sight of that and I desperately try not to, because uh, the only reason I'm still doing what I 
love to do so desperately as a career and a profession is because of the people who lift me up every day. There was also, I, I think, a really interesting moment kind of in the, the late 90s and early 2000s at, at Georgetown and, and in DC of creativity. And what, what was it like to be a part of that, that scene? Well, you know, it was, in, it was interesting. Our sort of closest parallel as far as a band that was really starting to crush it and make things happen were Dave Matthews' band. Um, and, you know, just such a nice group of people, a great organization. Our producer, uh, a guy named John Alasia, who has gone on to do incredible work, uh, and his partner, a guy named Doug Derryberry, who actually lives in New York City now and has the Sesame Street gig. He plays in the, in the Sesame Street band. Um, these guys sort of uh, introduced us to a lot of guys in the in the Northern Virginia sort of Maryland DC scene, um, and and Dave Matthews Band were really the the band that were just shooting into the stars, um, and Carter Beaufort, the drummer from the band, uh, when we were making our second studio record, a record called Running on Ice, he kind we we were, I was desperate to bring a bit more of a band feel to the record, uh, whereas our first record had been largely just two acoustic guitars um, and I was talking to Carter about it and saying I wanted to have a, a you know a drummer play and he said well I'll play and this you know this is unbelievable this is one of the best drummers in the world um, joining us and playing on our little record and we've over the years uh, we've we've done well with drummers uh, um, I've become great friends with Neil Peart the drummer from Rush and he's played on two of our records, uh, and he and I have co-written a song together. And Rush is my favorite band. When I, you know, was growing up, I just loved and continue to love that band. And so uh, we've done very well with guest drummer situations. We're gonna have to talk about Rush after this. Okay. Over. I did not know that about you. Oh yeah. Well, we, can talk, we can talk about Rush now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could. I don't think I know who Rush. I don't know who that is. So okay, is that this, now, now this is definitely what we're talking about. <laughs> Modern day warrior, mean, mean, straight, days down, so you mean, mean, pride. Ba -na 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 -na. Okay, maybe I recognize that. <laughs> I recognize it. You weren't, you weren't expecting that, were you? I wasn't. Okay, good. <laughs> I don't know who All right, what were, where were you going now? I was going to ask some other bands that you inspired you at the time that you really looked up to. Um, so, you know, growing up in New England, James Taylor was a huge influence. Uh, the Cars were a huge influence. Um, but I also loved Iron Maiden. Um, I loved Brian Eno, uh, you know, who was an incredible producer, worked with lots of great artists like U2 and Peter Gabriel. Uh, or Did he work with Peter Gabriel? Um, Brian Eno uh, did a bunch of... Uh, ambient music soundtracks. That he has a record called um, uh, Music for Airports that is a completely, it's the antithesis to a rock record. And so it's I, so good though. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, that's actually uh, something I'd recommend to everybody. If you haven't heard Brian Eno's Music for Airports record, go out and give it a spin or a Spotify or Apple Music or whatever you do, but um, it's great. So I tried to listen to all different kinds of music and learn from everything. Who are you listening to today? I like, uh, there's a band called Francis, uh, Francis and the Lights, I think it's called. Oh, the song with Bonnie Bear. Yes. So good. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I had it playing, I was playing it this morning. Were you really? Yeah, yeah. Well, the song I'm obsessed with is a song called Can I Have This Dance. Yeah, great track. It's incredible. It's incredible. I love this song. Peter Gabriel is, is maybe my favorite singer, songwriter, 
Um, and he sounds the... It's a very similar sound, for sure. And it just knocks me out. I, I think it's so beautiful. And so we'll bring things a little bit towards watches. So your, your love of watches started while you were on tour, right? My love for watches really started... My father gave me a, a Hamilton khaki field watch that was sort of co-branded with L.L. Bean. He bought it from the L.L. Bean catalog. Uh, it was a manual wine, maybe 30, is it 32, 34 millimeter? Um, and it's, uh, I still have it. Um, just got it serviced and new crystal for it, keeping it honest. Um, and I just was fascinated with it. I, I would stare at the seconds hand and listen to it when I, when I was winding it. I still have the little sticker on the case back, you know, all these years later. Uh, and that was, that was my first real, um, you know, uh, that, that watch was my first sort of entree into, into watches in general. Um, but when we, yes, when, when in 1997, when I signed my first publishing deal, I bought this watch, which is a Omega Seamaster 300, uh, and it's a, 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 it is the Pierce Brosnan era James Bond watch, the full on like, you know, and it was funny because I, was kind of priding myself on not being a Rolex guy at the time, you know. Oh, I, I wouldn't get a Submariner. I'll get the, you know, the Omega Speed, uh, Seamaster, rather. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so I've, I've, I've worn it off and on over the years. I'll, I'll, I'll never, you know, I'll never, I'll never let it go. I remember signing the publishing deal, get, getting a little bit of money, and that day walking into a mall in North Carolina, I think it was in Raleigh, and just seeing it in behind the counter, and, you know, I had been lusting after this thing for a long time, and I was just like, I'm buying myself a watch, you know? It was this huge moment of victory. It felt like it was really great to celebrate a, a significant accomplishment with a timepiece, and uh, that's obviously been done for however long as probably as, as watches have been around. Um, but I loved sort of investing in that in, you know, for myself. And I've tried to continue that too, so, you know, over the years so that when significant things happen, maybe another watch makes it into my world. But, you know, it's funny when I was thinking about what I was going to wear today, um, you know, I have a lot of watches that are more, you know, expensive, more uh, collectible or whatever you want to say. But this is the watch that started me you know, to, you know, really led me to become a passionate collector, and everything about it. You know, the, the 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 wave pattern on the dial, which you know maybe isn't absolutely my favorite thing right now. If I were to purchase it, I remember just being mesmerized by the fine details of it, um, and so it's a special it's a special thing to me. And what are some of the other milestones since that you've kind of marked with, with watches? Well, the, ironically, um, I, I don't know if you guys have had this experience. I know people talk about it a lot, where y you resist being a Rolex person because it feels like it's the, the, the you know, people, it's, people aren't necessarily even thinking when they make the purchase. They just, they know they need a Rolex, so they go buy the latest Submariner. Um, and I, I didn't want to be that guy, uh, but I desperately wanted a Submariner because I thought it was the coolest watch in the world. And ever since seeing James Bond in uh, um, Goldfinger, I think it was in the intro, Goldfinger on that, the you know maybe it's an 18 inch, uh, 18 millimeter rather NATO band w with the the red and, and, and black stripes and uh, gold stripe or whatever. Um, I. 
I thought, well, that's the coolest watch. A friend of mine in New York owned a guitar shop called 30th Street Guitars. His name's Matt Uminov, and Matt was upgrading to a sea dweller, uh, and, uh, and he had a 5513 serif dial that he uh, I would see every day when I'd go in to get my broken guitars fixed, and I'd just stare at his wrist as he was, you know, working on my guitars, and uh, eventually, you know, I said, hey, if you ever sell that watch, I, I, I'd really like to buy it, so I wound up buying um, the, uh, the 5513 from him when we signed with RCA Records, and, and that watch ain't going anywhere. Great. I love it. And you're also something of a Speedmaster guy, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I am uh, in that I'm, I've been fascinated by the story of the watch. I'm, I, I love the design of it. It's interesting. I have a few rules in my col for my collection. Uh, one of them is no chronographs. Uh, another is no stick hands. Um, and I break these rules all the time. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I don't like date bubbles, so I prefer not to have a date bubble, and yet I just, a year or so ago, bought a 1655 with a big old date bubble on it, the Cyclops. Um, but, uh, but the Speedmaster, um, yeah, you, you look at that and you're going to break all your rules for that watch because it's perfect. Um, I just recently got a... Um, a, a 1965, um, was it the 155012, is that right? With the... I think so. Yeah, with the 861, or 321 three, uh, movement. And uh, so I have, now I have the Meister, the Speedmeister that, that uh, Eric Wind helped me uh, get through um, the, the Christie's auction. And then Eric actually helped me find this, uh, this other 1965 watch. And it's really neat to think that, you know, while uh, the Gemini missions were going on uh, up there in space, the guys were just wearing effectively the same thing that's on my wrist, you know, doing much less important things. <laughs> Is there a watch that you're right now kind of like lusting after, like the thing that's like the next thing for you? Well, so the other night at the at the gathering here, a gentleman was wearing the new uh, Rolex GMT um, st in steel with the Jubilee, and I I I wanted to think I've I've wanted to think that that watch was no big deal. I wanted to, I wanted that to just bounce off of me and have it be like, oh, I don't I don't want one of those. No, and he was so cool, just wearing. Everybody else was kind of dolled up. He was wearing just a white t-shirt and jeans. Got like just that guy. super cool gray hair, and he's just so like he had a Steve McQueen ness about him, and I just and then I looked at his freaking wrist, and it was that damn new <laughs> Rolex GMT, and I thought it was fabulous. I I don't want to jump into that that market, but I it's. It's amazing in person. I was when I saw it at Basel for the first time. I wasn't expecting to like it. Yeah, I really liked it when I saw it in person. Yeah. And I saw I talked to that guy as well. He was very very cool. He yeah, was very laid, laid back and just kind of yeah very casual. Keegan said something really similar uh, when we recorded with him, where he was saying that he wanted that one to essentially not affect him. Yeah. and then the more he saw it, the more it was like he couldn't really get it out of his mind. And yeah. he said he figured he would probably loop around back to one pretty soon. So yeah, well, I, I mean it's. It's got a thing. It's really got a thing. And I've always liked the Jubilee bracelet. I, you know, we were talking about your, uh, James is wearing a 16750, right? Uh, 
16570 on a uh, polar a polar GMT uh, Rolex with an aftermarket Jubilee band that you were yep. saying was like sixty dollars. Yeah, something? it's like Hadley Roma makes it, and I think it looks really interesting because the watch didn't come with a Jubilee yeah. originally from uh, from the brand, but I, I think it looks pretty good. It's pretty comfortable. It's killer. Yeah, it's fun. So the Jubilee bla- bracelet, it, even though the, if you were going to choose maybe one, I think the Oyster bracelet is arguably the greatest piece of jewelry, quote-unquote, that for, certainly for me as a man, that, that, that a man could wear. That's my argument. I, I think there are plenty of arguments against that, but I'll stick with the Oyster bracelet. But the Jubilee has a thing that's really amazing. Like, the way you're wearing that right now, what we need to do a James Stacy picture when this is all done. For sure. But it's like, he's kind of like, just like green tones. He's relaxing, and yet he's wearing this, like, you know, marginally blingy. Yeah, it's got some bling. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's something a little bit aggressive about wearing yeah. a Rolex sports watch on a Jubilee bracelet. It's yes. just like, it's cool. You see people wearing Daytonas on them and like, yeah. it's it's something else. Yeah. I And as far as what am I lusting after, there, there's one other new watch that I really want to see. I want to see that Tudor 58 mm. um, yeah, Black good. Bay in person. I, you Real guys... Good. You have you just have, have one in the office. Yeah. I did and I have one on order too. Nice. Yeah. There you Because I thought I saw one on your feed. Yeah, it's it's killer. It's I, really, really I love good. the size and I love the, the height. For me, the the Black Bay, as it stands now, it feels a little too, for me, it feels a little bit too tall or, you know. It's a robust one. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And for bigger, I have small wrists, so for bigger guys, I think it's perfect, but I, I like the looks of that. Does that have drilled lugs? Um, I don't think it does. I don't think it does. Yeah. But it, it honestly, it's the closest thing you can buy now to a vintage sub. Right. It, it feels like wearing a vintage Submariner. And uh, this will come out in our review coming nice. soon, uh, which may be out by the time this runs. But uh, it it really, you put it side by side with a vintage Tudor sub and you measure all the dimensions. It's actually smaller wow. in a couple dimensions than like an old MN uh, Snowflake. That's cool. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. So what do you think of the Tudor GMT versus the Rolex? Well, so I just saw James had uh, a watch roll with both of those watches together. Um, and okay, so... <laughs> I don't do brown. I don't. You mean you don't? Like, but I have no brown. Or whatever. Yeah. I have no brown in my life. I'm kind of the same way. So yeah. I have. I get what you're saying. But okay. I just wanted to, yeah. To, to so clarify. right. Fair. Sorry. <laughs> that deserved clarification. Yeah. I have no brown color in my life as far as stuff goes, and uh, so I, I like black uh, bands and you know blues and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it was on this brown leather band, and the yeah. first thing I did, was, I thought to myself, well, what would it look like on a black, you know, or a steel band? But it's, it's beautiful. I, do, I did notice, and I've seen this watch, I've spent five seconds with this watch. Um, I did like the color of the, the bezel. Um, I thought it was really cool. Uh, but the GMT, um, the, the, the Rolex, is, it's, it's hard. It's, it's tough to have them sitting next to each other because in the metal, that Rolex is, is crazy. But for the price, that's the thing about Tudor right now. I mean, for enthusiasts who want to get into this world, I mean, in-house movements, um, you know, the heritage that they have, the design language, the snowflake hand is a, is a wonderful, uh, uh, you know, aesthetic. It's so cool. But last thing you said, are there any other grails? I have to mention, I, I definitely want a big crown sub. And I really, really want one with the Explorer dial, the 369. 
I do. I want one Real of those. Cool. I, can see, yeah. I can see you rocking that. That's, I, that's I, a pretty great watch. For I want to rock that. For sure. Or a Milsa and or a Milsub with the sword hands. I So if you guys can help me make that happen. I like, think we can help you find something. Yeah, sure. just maybe by the time I leave, if I could have one of those. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> that's each, what you get for each, coming on the show. Is that, yeah. That's the, that's the yeah, deal, right? We take right? care of people okay. here, okay? Cool. <laughs> you know, Matt, you were saying earlier that like... Uh, referencing the wave dial on your Seamaster that it may not be something you would buy now mm -hmm. since you bought that how would you say your tastes have changed do you think it's more of like a refinement or it's wider now I think generally speaking I, I, I prefer slightly simpler designs now um, but having said that I, the case of this watch so I have a 1967 Seamaster uh, 300 it's not the big triangle um, it's actually been featured on the Hudinki Instagram feed, and it was one of the greatest moments of my life. When you, when you <laughs> guys love did, to hear. I'm telling you, I was jumping up and down around the house. I'm like, yes, Hudinki. Um, but this watch is incredible. And, and for me, if I never were to get a Millsub, this, this thing scratches a lot of the itch. Um, but the case actually is similar to this case. Um, it's similar to the Speedmaster case. Right. And that's a beautiful, I mean, I love all the li little nuances that you kind of discover when you're holding this thing in your hands. Um, the helium escape valve, like, really? I don't know. I, it's, I haven't needed to use it. Really? <laughs> I have not needed to use the helium escape valve, as far as I know. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I, th I say things that my taste have become a little bit simpler. I absolutely adore the watch that Steven's wearing, which 1016. is, yeah, 1016 Explorer, uh, is it guilt dial, right, guilt dial. So it's, it's a perfect yeah, it's a thing. <laughs> There's nothing unnecessary about that watch. And I, I do generally think like, if I don't know the date, it doesn't really matter. Like, it's, it's fine. Yeah. You'll be I, okay. I can look at my phone or I can ask my friend, Cara, what date is it? Because it's there it's on the your date. amazing Royal Oak. I love the, the idea of you wearing a no-date watch and just texting Cara anytime yeah. Yeah, you need yeah, the date. That. I'll let you know. I love a date. We, should, we should make that a <laughs> thing for sure. <laughs> just text Cara if you need the date. Cara, what's the date today? Well, it's the 8th. Uh, <laughs> we'll need to figure out something that I can do for you, you know, but it needs to be at <laughs> a similar... sing more. That was great. <laughs> All right, I'll sing to you every every you morning a in a text. A little voice memo. A little bit of Yeah, a little... Every day a different Rush song for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Da, 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 da. Now I have to download Rush. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we got to fix that. It is all about Rush. Let's be Can I be embarrassed by that? I no, you shouldn't. <laughs> no, 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 no. You shouldn't at all. I mean, you're you're young for. I, I'm of the generation when it was just they were just killing it, and uh, so no, don't you okay. should. There's all no right. no bad feelings on Hudinky Radio. That's a good. That's a good motto. No bad feelings on Hudinky Radio. I like that. Although we were debating earlier as to whether or not James and I should be like arch enemies. Yeah, because you two are the two nicest human beings I've that ever is met. True. There's not a bad vibe between the two of you. I can't be in the same room with that guy. Steve and I are the meanies. Yeah, I know. It makes me feel terrible. These guys are so nice. Um, I got I to gotta ask you, you mentioned earlier you have rules for collecting. Yes. Can you go over your rules? What, what are your yeah, rules I, that I you break of, all the time? Okay, so uh, no dress watches because... Why? These are. This is gonna. This is. This is gonna offend people who are, are much more knowledgeable. This is great. I than I that. am, and I'm okay with it. Like no, no dress watches, no gold, no rose gold. I don't care, James. I don't care. 
<laughs> I don't care. No date windows, no stick hands. So no Rainbow Daytona at all. Never a Rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, Rainbow Daytona gets a pass on every level. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. If I had a Rainbow da Daytona, I'd probably... Had to bring it up. I'd, I'd want two, and I'd want to do it Morgan King style. <laughs> um, yeah, no stick hands, no chronographs, uh, no dates if possible, definitely no days. And I, unfortunately, I break these rules all the time. So I was wearing, yesterday, I was wearing a Seiko, I'm going to get the reference wrong, but a Seiko 6109, the blue, 6105 is, 6105, this, is, this doesn't matter, but I, I want to say that the 6105 is a, is a dive watch, because I just bought, a six, I think, a 6105-8000, which is the transition model before the sort of Apocalypse Now watch that everybody, it's, everybody knows with that slightly... This is a visual motion that I'm making to everyone in podcast land. <laughs> but uh, it's sort of an asymmetrical case. This one is a very symmetrical case. Regardless, the, it, the watch I was wearing yesterday is the blue version of the Pogue, essentially. Right. Um, and it's got stick hands. It's a chronograph. And it's got a day of the week and the date. Yeah. So, so all rules broken. Sweet. Yeah. yeah. If, it, if it only were gold and was on a leather strap, that's another rule. No leather straps. Sorry, guys. I mean, I, I don't, I, I, wow. I mean, I'm on the wrong podcast. Wow. Sick burn. No, I, no, I like NATOs. I like, I like cloth, but I don't own a leather strap and I don't own anything that's brown. And I really don't have, <laughs> okay. I really honestly don't have much rationale for any of this. But you asked me what my rules were. That's fair. And I'm going to answer them. Great. <laughs> I get it. Do you? I don't like wearing leather straps that much either. And I don't huh? like brown. And I make rules and then I break them. And now for a look at this week's sponsor. Dop kits might not be the sexiest thing to talk about, but for anyone who travels regularly, you'll know they are super important. Hook & Albert is a modern travel brand building bags for people who are constantly sprinting through airports. Last week, I showed you their Garment Weekender bag, and this week, we've got their Dop kit. It's built almost like a piece of architecture. You unzip the center pocket, and when you open it up, there's a rigid structure that holds it open like a doctor's bag, so you can really see deep in and not lose anything. There are also two side flaps, which fold down so that, for neurotic people like me, you don't have to place your toiletries directly on a hotel countertop. There are tons of color and material options that match all of Hook & Albert's larger bags, so you can really build out a full kit. To learn more and to see all of the options, check out their brand new website at hookandalbert.com. All right, let's get back to the show. <laughs> so we alluded to it earlier, but you're, you're also becoming something of a car guy, right? Well, I've been a car guy for a very, very long time. I, I always have read the magazines and poured over them and nerded out on which car would be faster than which car, assuming that I could drive it as well as the guy who was driving it to post those numbers. Um, but yeah, over the past couple of years, I've done some stuff here in town for KTLA and more recently on Headline News where I'm, I'm doing some car reviews. Um, and uh, I, I, I really... I absolutely adore cars. It is, uh, so when I was born, here's the short story, 
ish, short ish. When I was born, my mom and dad had a, a Porsche 912, which is the four cylinder version of the 911, slightly smaller engine. A lot of people, that car is coming back in a lot of ways because people say it's a lighter car, maybe it's, it's, it might not have as much acceleration and get up and go, but it might be a, a driver's car that people sort of skipped over for a long time. Anyways, um, I actually have a picture on my phone of me when I was a kid out by the, the you know, the Porsche logo, just like that beautiful leaf green 911T. Have people talked about this car on this podcast? No, you should do that. Well, here in the, in the UTA artist space, uh, everyone has so beautifully set up here at Hodinkee, there's this like mind-bendingly beautiful leaf green Porsche 911T um, that w- was kind of an infamous car here around L.A., I don't know if it's going to continue to be uh, here in L.A. or not, but uh, it's stunning. The color, I guess Ben was telling me yesterday that the color was only made for one year, um, and it's just an exquisite car in an exquisite color. Um, but bringing it back to, to my um, to my story, um, they, uh, my mom and dad had this 912, and so when I was born, they, they put me on the back parcel shelf of the 912 to take me back from the hospital in Boston to my home in Worcester. Um, so the first engine that I ever heard in my life was a Porsche engine. Uh, and so all these years now, I've owned other cars, but I finally bought my first 911, and I love this thing. It's incredible. And you can see the singularity of purpose. I admire the fact that the Germans are so, you know, stubborn that they're like, no, look, we know the engine's in the wrong place and we don't care. And we're going to continue to work on this thing until it's, you know, not that dangerous. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's dangerous-ish. Um, and, uh, no, but, and I'm able to use it every day. It's my car. That's, that's my car. And I stick my guitars in the back or in the front or wherever I can. And when I'm going on the road, my, the luggage that I take actually just fits perfectly in the frunk, which is what they call the trunk in front because the engine's in the back. So you stick your bag in the frunk and you're off to the airport. I, what spec did you go with? So I, I, bought the two, I bought a 2015 Carrera S. So it's the last year of the normally aspirated engine for the, the basic uh, cars in the range, the non-GT uh, cars. And um, it's the PDK box, which, you know, living in L.A., LA it makes a lot of sense. But I, I can also really see at some point, uh, you know, getting a manual car. But the, 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 the car that I'm kind of currently sort of lusting after is the that new gt3 touring i think is a, a very very cool car For that sure. so that's a um that's a uh, um it's a manual shift only gt3 so super high revving engine super super huge performance a little bit more like it harkens back to the 911R that came out a couple of years ago that was selling for bonkers prices, and then Porsche kind of came in and said okay hold on everybody you know let's not panic for sure you know and a great car, I mean, with uh, the touring package where they drop the wing and it yeah. retains kind of the body lines of a more street-ready 911. And I love that front, uh, the front bumper sure. is, is so aggressive on those cars. Fantastic. I don't, I don't know what the wait list is or what the lineup's like. Yeah. Uh, that scenario, so maybe it's a little bit easier in L.A., but uh, certainly a great car for around here. up in the Yeah, Canadians. totally. Get James, have trouble. you gotten to drive that car? I've not, no. No? James has driven a lot of cool cars. James drives a lot of cool cars. You have a cool car out front right now, don't you? Uh, it comes tomorrow. Comes tomorrow. Of a 720S coming tomorrow. 
McLaren 720S. Yeah. No big deal. James is really casual like that. <laughs> Only drives McLarens in LA. I love it. I, love I it. drove a Yukon this morning. I'm a man of the people. <laughs> Actually, we were in a McLaren last time we were in LA, weren't we? Um, what were we in? Or we saw a McLaren. Probably. <laughs> those are two. Different. Those are two very different things. That's They're very the different. opposite. That's but, very different. But, but like we were in a Jeep Wrangler. The last yeah, time. we were in a Jeep. Wrangler. You were in a car when you saw a McLaren. So yeah. <laughs> we saw one. Ergo, Not like on the oh, road. We saw, you were yeah, in yeah, a McLaren. Yeah, yeah, Matt. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Matt Farah. We were at Matt Farah's place right. in uh, the smoking tunnel. Oh yeah, sure. And we didn't like had, see one on the highway. We were like, no, we were with someone who had a McLaren. One quick question. First, first car. What was your first car? My first car was a Ford Explorer. Okay. That my mom and dad. Sorry? Eddie Bauer? Not the Eddie Bauer version. We weren't that posh. Got to have a Bauer. Um, we, <laughs> my mom and dad bought me, uh, bought me that car, truck, whatever it was. Uh, and that was the car um, that we drove all over the country in and sold our records out of the pop-up tailgate after shows. Um, I don't still have it. They were great, though. It was great. It was yeah. green. It had tan interior. So it was a... so close to the Eddie Bauer. I know. It was very close <laughs> to the Eddie Bauer edition. That gold stripe. Okay, but here's another thing. Logos. I don't wear no. T-shirts with logos on them. And the Eddie Bauer edition could not say Eddie Bauer more times. No, I mean, you're, you're a man after my own heart. Many logos. Eddie Bauer. Stop it, Eddie. What, uh, Eddie. what badging do you have <laughs> no, on the 911? No, no, Eddie Bauer, fewer logos. So the car, so I bought my car and my Porsche used. One of the things that's really, really cool about the Porsches is you can, you can tell them to badge delete things. You can have them take some of the verbiage mm -hmm. off of the car. And, but, but since my car was used, I just, it, it is what it is. It's, yeah. It says everything back there. <laughs> it could not say more things back there. So can you actually do that? They'll debadge the car for you? Yeah, you can spec it when you're ordering it. In fact, they, they even said you could do it now, but since it's lived a life for a little bit while, a little while underneath the paint, it might you know, have a little shadow of, of the stuff that's been hiding, it, hiding the paint, fresh paint from the sun. Okay. This is not interesting for a lot of people. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> wow, deep dive into debadging cars. Come on. We, we try to bring the heat, right? I love it, man. <laughs> so other, other than cars and watches, do you collect anything else? Do you collect guitars or, or anything? I do. I mean, that, that's really what I do is, is collect. Uh, I, I use them, so I'm not sure how much of a... Well, I use my watches too, but... So yes, I, I, when I first started um, getting a little bit of money, I bought a lot of great old uh, uh, musical gear, uh, specifically Marshall amps from the 60s. Um, you know, a lot of my favorite guitar players played these wonderful old, old guitar amps, and I kind of got in there before it was really crazy, and now it's now they're a lot of money. Um, the vintage guitar bug has also really hit me hard, uh, and I've um, I've been for very fortunate to to get some uh, incredibly special instruments that I use every day, you know, to make these records. So I'm a, I'm a huge vintage Gibson fan. I tend to be more of a, a, a Gibson guy than a Fender guy. That's, you know, as much as when you meet someone and people say, are you Rolling Stones or Beatles? Uh, you'll, you know, guitar players will oftentimes say to each other, are you Fender or Gibson? Um, there are many other great companies out there. I, when I tour, especially I use a company out of Maryland called Paul Reed Smith. I use their instruments. They're wonderfully, I mean, incredibly solidly built, so much so. We do a lot of shows for the troops around the world. Um, it's my real passion. 
uh, as a performer to try to give back to people who have incredibly difficult jobs and do, do the tough work. Um, and the politics of everything, I just put it all aside and I try to go, um, you know, give my fellow countrymen a smile and a break. And so we go to places like Afghanistan and Iraq um, and places that you would normally think a, a wooden instrument would sort of start to give up the ghost. You know, they're, they're sitting out on a tar, you know, 135 degrees in the tarmac in a case, and when it's time to actually play the gig, the wood hasn't shifted, the instrument isn't, you know, bro the electronics haven't melted. Um, so they make uh, great instruments in there. It's a, a you know, new, uh, newer company than these heritage brands like Gibson and Fender. The PRS are the one that has the birds in the fretboard? Yes, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. their... Uh, yeah, they're really cool. Yeah, they're really great guitars. Do you, do you have a Grail guitar, a guitar that you would love to own someday that you haven't been able to track down? I actually... Uh, yeah, it's funny. I haven't really told this story yet, but um, uh, I've been meaning to, and uh, this seems as good a time as any. Perfect. Um, so the the, the 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 sort of holy grail for guitar collectors is the uh, the Gibson Les Paul Burst or Sunburst guitar. Sunburst finished Les uh, Les Paul um, two humbucker guitar. Everyone knows what a Les Paul is, or a, it's an iconic instrument, let's say, and. Um, and yet to find an actual burst of which were maybe 1,600 were made between 1958 and 1960, towards the end of 1960, um, they're incredibly difficult to find. They know the whereabouts of about, I think, 900 of these things. Um, and I was incredibly fortunate uh, to be able to purchase uh, a 19, early 1960 uh, uh, burst Les Paul from the original owner. Um, and. I'm going to be doing a story about that for our website and, and talking about this instrument because they are, they are uh, it's a Stradivarius, so to speak, of, of electric guitar. Does it play as well as you hoped? It really does. Uh, it's, it, sounds, it sounds amazing. Um, and the frets, it's, it, it, it had been sitting in its case effectively since 1974. Oh, wow. Um, so it, the wood needed to be played, um, you know, the, when the vibrations of the, of the notes that you play go through the instrument, they kind of, the, instru the instrument, if it's been lying dormant for a while, I don't know the science behind this, I just know the, the, the practical experience of it, that the guitar almost needs to be uh, wakened up. And, uh, and that's what's happened with this instrument. It just, I play it every day, I work with it, I'm working on a new Vertical Horizon record now, and every day I just bring it to the studio and let it do its thing, and it, it, oh man, it's a joy. That's great. Yeah, thanks. Is, is the world of vintage guitars and specialty guitars similar at all to the world of, of watches and cars in terms of there being specific dealers who specialize in certain things and kind of a community of people who are sort of trading these things around? Yeah, there is. Um, I've been amazed uh, both in the vintage guitar world and almost on some levels more so in the watch world to find a group of people who are super passionate and also uh, willing to teach and, and share their knowledge and experience uh, with people who are learning. Um, I was kind of intimidated, or I thought, when I was, when I was really um, coming into this hobby, that it might be an elitist and uh, exclusive club. Uh, and, and I 
have no problem asking the question uh, when, I, when I don't know something. And that means a lot of t I spend a lot of time asking questions. Uh, and that can be annoying in, in a conversation when the person's going, hey, wait, hold on, I'm sorry, double underline, what, what? You know, exclamation point, all these things that you hear. Um, but I've really been fortunate to, to get in with a great group of friends uh, and, you know, people like Eric Koo, Eric Wind, Morgan King, these guys who are, and you guys, I mean, you know, thank you for, for helping me as I learn, you know, and, and so much of that has to do with uh, this sort of, there, there is a, um, a community uh, that is, uh, it's a sharing community, you know, when people get something that's really cool, it's kind of a celebration. And for me in the vintage guitar and amp world, that's certainly the case. Um, a good friend of mine uh, works, works for Gibson and he helped me through uh, the process, making sure that it was authentic and all that. And, and an, a, another guitar player, incredible, incredibly talented guitar player and, and guitar collector named Joe Bonamassa uh, was also uh, a, a huge help for me. And he, he likes watches too, so he's cool. We might have to meet him I, I, He's a good guy. Um, so in just a couple minutes, we're going to open up the floor to questions. Uh, if you would like to ask a question, there's a microphone right there. We ask that you use it just so that it shows up on the recording. Um, but for now, we're going to start with our Hodinkee Radio questionnaire. Uh, we ask every guest uh, a series of five questions. Uh, they're kind of quick, short answers. Oh, boy. Okay. And then we have a special question just, just for you, if that's all right. Yes. Uh, so, question number one, uh, what is the best place you've traveled in the last year? We do so much travel, it's hard to say. Uh, I, I, I love going to Tokyo. I was just in Tokyo. I'm a huge denim fan. I love raw denim. That's a I, very, I, can, I can tell. It's a nerdy thing. But um, I love raw denim, and, and, and Tokyo, Japan in general, is, uh, is, is you know, they make maybe the, the best fabrics, all this fabric I'm wearing is Japanese. Oh, that's so nerdy. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I went there and had a great experience. They love watches, too, you know. So I love that culture. I love the food there. I'd say Tokyo. Great. That wasn't a quick answer. I'll get quicker. No, that's, that's great. Um, number two, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received and uh, who gave it to you? Well, I think it comes from my parents originally, but I've told people so many times in my life that I almost feel like it just comes from me. Um, but p saying please and thank you, that's the best piece of advice anyone can give you. I talk about it all the time uh, in our world, you know, uh, the, the, in, the, in, the, in the world of, of musicians. We, have, we can have a tendency to, to act in a somewhat entitled fashion. You walk onto a stage and you've only been there on that stage for five minutes, but the crew who have put the stage together have been there since 6 a.m. and worked all day long to get this thing ready for you. So if you walk on like it's no big deal uh, and that you're entitled to just move forward from, you know, on the backs of all these people who have put in this time, you know, I just think it's wrong. And so I try to make a point uh, every day that we're working to, to meet everybody who helped us get this thing going and, and, and say thank you for your help. Um, it's shocking to me. It's not unlike the use of the indicator on the, uh, uh, on the road. You know, like, it just, you use your indicator on the road because you want to be polite, right? You want to let people know what you're doing. Um, say please and thank you. It's, it's going to make everybody's life better. Uh, number three, what's your guilty pleasure? It's a good question. T-Swift? What's that? Taylor Swift? Oh. 
Um, not, not so much. <laughs> not so much, Taylor, Tay-Tay. Um, that's a good question. I have a hard time of thinking as pl- of pleasures as being guilty. I, I sort of feel like if you're enjoying something, you're enjoying it, and there's nothing wrong with that. So have a bar of chocolate or listen to a Tay-Tay record. Yeah, my shorter answer is I, I'm not sure that there really are any guilty pleasures. All right. That's fair. Uh, I, if I can think, it's it's not fair because you wanted something. It's totally fair. But but I'm it's not giving answer. it to you. But I, if I think of something guilty, I'll give it to you in a sec. Sorry. Perfect. Uh, number four, if you had to do something else for a living, what would you be doing? Well, I studied psychology in college, so so I was on the path to become a therapist. I realized after working for a year in an adult daycare center uh, in Maryland uh, with, with Alzheimer's patients that I didn't at the time certainly have the skill set to kind of take all this in, all these difficult things in and process them and sort of keep myself whole. You know, it really weighed heavily on me. I've since then talked to a lot of people who, you know, explain that, well, it's something that you do, you kind of download it then to uh, someone else who helps you. You don't necessarily just take all this stuff in and hold it. so it's possible that I would, I would go back and, and give that a try. I, I love the idea of exploring why we feel the way we feel. I mean, as a songwriter, it's my, it's my craft. Largely, it's focused inward for myself. Um, but I do find, and it's incredible, that when, when I write a song, even if I think it's the most esoteric um, and, and sort of uh, circumspect subject, I find, well, we all have the same feelings. And if it, may, it may not be you know, wrapped up in the same wrapper that I put it in, but the, at its core, we all feel the same feelings. Great. Uh, number five, what's the thing you're looking forward to the most right now? <sighs> I think having that fist fight with James Stacy that we've like we planned, I think it's going to be good, and I think we we do it right in front of the 9/11 T, and who knows, maybe some body panels suffer as well. This is very impressive, <laughs> dude. It's getting full on, man. Perfect. Uh, your bonus question: um, yeah. What is your Desert Island record. You get one record for the rest of forever. Yeah, right. It's an impossible question. I, it should be a Vertical Horizon record because I should just be that guy who names his own band. <laughs> I do believe, by the way, I do think after I said I don't wear any logos, I do. I love guys who wear their own bands T-shirts, and uh, so many of my friends are like, "No, dude, you can't do that." But I do love that. Like when I look up at Metallica or Iron Maiden, then they're wearing their own shirts. Jump to mind. For I, some yeah. reason, I feel like I've seen those. I'm like, yeah, and you guys are the coolest guys <laughs> in the world. So like, there have been a few times where I've worn a Vertical Horizon shirt, and I realized what I really realized is I'm not in Metallica and I'm not in Iron Maiden, <laughs> and so maybe I can't do that. But I wanted to, so I did it. Uh, but um, what was the question? <laughs> Desert Island Records. Right. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, um, <laughs> no, I'd, I'd, I guess I'd say So by Peter Gabriel. Um, it it kind of get, gets every mood that you might possibly be in. He's, he's just a, he's an unbelievable writer, producer, piano player, dulcimer player. I don't know about that last thing. Probably. He, he may not play the dulcimer. All right. <laughs> uh, let's open it up to the audience. Who would like to ask... A question. 
Thanks, Matt, for being here. Your curiosity and passion is super uh, inspiring and oh, contagious as well. Thank you. Um, I'm curious, as someone who's been in the music industry for a while, uh, if you could speak to like maybe the nerdy bits of songwriting, and in particular, like your process and how that's changed. You know. To, like today, what you yeah. do, and then like how that was uh, ten years ago, and what's what's different. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I, I for me, it always started with the guitar. I would sit down with the guitar and play, sort of noodle along, uh, and let a song sort of reveal itself to me. I would sing and continue to sing nonsense words and phrases, which is. Um, as a musician, I'm sure you're familiar with that, um, and almost let some lyrics re reveal themselves. Uh, as time has gone on, I've actually felt sometimes like when I sit down with the guitar, <clears throat> I start having conversations that I've already had with the instrument. Um, and that's something that I'll never stop doing because it's really my passion. I love that. I love that. Uh, the guitar the most of anything. I just wanted to be a guitar player originally um, and then you know realized, well, if I write songs and learn how to sing, then I might be a little bit more in control of my destiny here. Um, but um, what I've been doing lately is I've been writing songs on piano, on keyboard, and I find mostly because I'm fairly ham-fisted um, and not technical with that instrument, I wind up sort of diving into a slightly more emotional place rather than a technical place. Um, and the, <clears throat> the last record we did, which was called The Lost Mile, almost every song was written on the keyboard. Um, it's a very different sounding record for us, and I don't know what comes next. It, you know, we may go back to doing more guitar-driven stuff, but um, we might not. Um, I guess for me, it's all about uh, uh, trying to not let your process um, um, dictate your musical output. So as much as you can, as much, as much as I'll just speak first person, as much as I can change that up so that I feel like I'm never truly comfortable or the next step down from there is bored uh, with the process, then I, I, I'm, I'm engaged in it. I also think, you know, <clears throat> for a, a, there was a short period of time for me where I found myself thinking, well, what do people want to hear? Actually, I was at a dinner last night, and a, a, a guy I was sitting next to asked me, how do you, how, so do you worry about staying relevant? And it was really interesting, because 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I would have said, yeah, I, I'm really worried about that. But what I've realized is I don't care in the slightest about relevance. What I care about is truth. I care about honesty. I care about honoring the inspiration that comes to me. I'm 48 years old, and I still wake up every morning wanting to write a song. That's a miracle, right? So I want to honor that, and I want to stay connected to that in any way that I can. Um, and a lot of that has to do with <clears throat> not thinking about what someone wants to hear, but thinking about what I want to say. And very often, it involves what I want to say to myself. So it's as small a circle as it could possibly be. And at the end of the day, the amazing thing, the interesting thing is, like I was saying earlier, is that it turns out we all share the same feelings. So I, when I write a song for my little broken piece that I found inside of myself to try to band-aid that bad boy up, you know, you may, have, you may hear it and say, yeah, I, I know that. I feel that too, you know. I'm not sure if that explains it, but yeah, it's part of it, certainly. Good luck in your process, like the whole thing, it's beautiful. Uh, 
so th this, this is one comment and two questions. Uh, the first comment is I would suggest you reconsider who you're asking for the date because it's not the 8th, it's the 9th, Kara. <laughs> oh, whoops. Yeah. Uh, so there's that. Burn. Um, Ouch. Yeah, burn. <laughs> I love how long he's been waiting for I was like, it's the 8th. It's definitely it's the 8th. It's the 8th. Uh, and then to, to kind of continue on my, my tradition of asking really kind of basic but, but obvious and, and kind of fun questions, you've had a world number one song. Yeah. Uh, what is that like as, as a songwriter? Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's interesting. The song came to me. It's, the song's called Everything You Want. It was the most played song on the radio in the year 2000, um, which is a long time ago. But it's funny. I, I was having dinner last night, and there was a... 20, 20 year old girl at the woman, young woman at the table, and I was thinking for sure she wouldn't know this song, and and uh, she was asking, what, what, you know, would I know anything that you wrote? So I sang her this little snippet, and she started, she finished the song. She just kept going, and she loved it. But uh, so how does it feel, you know? So, what, like I was saying, I, when I was writing that song, Everything You Want, I the last thing I really thought about was how does it resonate outside of this apartment? I was living in the West Village in New York City and feeling pretty down about some stuff. And um, uh, when it finally, when the record was released and it, it got out there in the world and started to blow up literally, um, my mom, when she was driving from Worcester to Cape Cod, which is a two and a half hour drive, she called me every time she heard the, <laughs> heard the song. And I think, it was, I think it was in that two hour drive on different radio stations, she called me nine or 10 times. It was, it was it's, it's, you can't imagine it. Um, it was a true, the, the, the greatest honor on some levels. Um, it's beyond my rec, beyond my, capacity to sort of understand on others. We did a gig in India uh, two years ago with something like 9,000 people there singing that song at the top of their lungs. And I've had that experience all over the world. <clears throat> so I don't know how to put it into words other than to say that my gratitude to people for taking my music into their lives is boundless. I, I, am, I am humbled and I am truly thankful. And another interesting point, or maybe the first interesting point, I, um, I run into people frequently who don't want to play their biggest hits anymore. They're tired of them. Um, they don't like that song, or they had a bad experience when they were writing it <clears throat> in terms of the relationship with the record company or the producer or the way the record came out or whatever. And I'm also thankful that I happen to love that song and those songs. I, I learned early on that if you don't like a song, don't put it on the record, because it's, it's going to be a hit. <laughs> and you'll be asked to play it forever, you know. Um, it, it was the, it, it changed. The short answer, Ben, and I, I would imagine you can kind of relate on some levels, because you started this thing as this little you know, blog where you're just writing down thoughts on watches and you've built it into this thing. People all over the world know this. People all over the world come and, and, and have an affinity for, for what you guys have built and what you guys have done. And for me, with that song in particular, Everything You Want, it's, it's become part of the air that we breathe in some small way. And that's beautiful. Thank you to Matt, Cara, and James for joining us. This week's episode was recorded live at the UTA Artist Space in Los Angeles and was produced and edited by Grayson Corhonan. 
Please remember to subscribe and rate the show. It really does make a difference. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. 